And we are back at it again. The Green Majority, yet another week. What's happening? This is the Green Majority. It's the Green Majority. And the Green Majority is a radio radio show called The Green Majority. And uh, it's on the, the radio. Um, CIUT 89.5 FM or on your podcast platform or your local community radio station. And also on the Harbinger Media Network. This is the most intense flaying. Flaying? No, no. Let's 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 not say that one. <laughs> That's icky. And Stefan is going to interview Mr. Jeff Dembicki, climate hero. He has written a report. Um, I've just been invited to Stefan's fundraising event. I've just been invited. I've just been invited. I've just been invited, folks. What you just heard was my personal invitation to the most important Toronto musical political event of the year. But uh, first, I was talking about Jeff Dembicki's. He has written a report. He's written a report, an article, a book, a, an entire book um, on the. What was it called? What the papers? The petroleum. The papers. petroleum papers. And so these are the papers that expose precisely how much Imperial Oil, now Exxon Mobil, knew at the time, according to their own scientists, what their product was doing to the planet and how it was causing climate change. And then consciously decided to reject and falsify that. Yes, basically. And this is going back to like the seventies, right? As early as nineteen fifty nine. Dang, that's way earlier. Yeah, there's there's a story that he tells in the interview, actually, about a man who listened to this scientific briefing in 1959 and then, like, many years later, started the oil company that is now Suncor. That's what the man did with that information. So Stefan will be interviewing Jeff Dembicki in a few minutes here. Yes. And we're going to do some climate news, right? Yes. And... I've just accepted your invitation, your Google Calendar invite, to the event called Tune In, which you're currently organizing, correct? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'll jump into that. Is that what we're doing here? Well, I would ask you to construct a very comprehensive edifice, at least indicating the the, the voluptuously wonderful character of this uh, upcoming event. All right. I can do that. Um, I mean, so... Well, listeners, you're the first ones to hear about it, actually. We've invited nobody else uh, until you right now. You're the first set of folks to be invited to this event. Uh, we've been sort of building it out in the background for the past couple of weeks. And it came out of a bit of an intention set a few months ago when we sort of realized that we hadn't thrown an in-person event in over five years. I think the, la the last and maybe only in-person event that we've ever thrown was our 500th episode party, uh, which we threw uh, well before the pandemic. And that was honestly a lot of fun. It was really great meeting the people who listen to the show and like helping to build a community around the folks who listen to the show. You who listen to the show are wonderful human beings. And so we wanted to do it again. And the opportunity came to do it now, partially as a fundraiser for CIUT, because you will hear in the upcoming weeks that we are coming up to their spring fundraising drive. It's actually going to happen right after that, May 18th, but it's still all supporting the same effort. All proceeds to CIUT. Exactly. Um, but what it is, it's going to be a, a night uh, of joy and music and art 
all centered around the Toronto that we could become. And the purpose of that is because you may have heard that we've just begun the the by-election has opened its doors for candidates. And so candidates have been coming through to become the mayor, to become mayor. And we may have heard me say this earlier, that this is a once in a decade opportunity to actually try to be a better city. And I think that we shouldn't miss that opportunity. And so we're going big. The venue's huge uh, for 400 people, which is a little intimidating, I will admit. So any support you can provide getting us out there would be very helpful to me and us. Uh, but we've got a great team behind it. Got some amazing musical acts coming through. We'll tell you more about it. But for right now, you can be the first person to buy a ticket for this event if you go to greenmajority.ca slash tune in. And because we want you there so badly, we have made Green Majority listeners specifically a 50% off discount code. So if you use Green Majority as your discount code, you'll get 50% off uh, because we want you to we want to meet you. We want to hang out with you. So please do come. Uh, May 18th, that's greenmajority.ca slash tune in. We'll put it in the show notes. If you listen to the podcast, you can find it there. Um, if you And if you go to a website, it'll be available to see it there too uh, quite shortly. So yeah, that's it. We're going to actually have a great time. And up in the coming weeks, we're, I'm going to talk to a few folks about the importance of joy in activism and how we can actually try to get out of the dire feelings that exist in this city right now and it is quite dire it's very it's dire. getting really weird it's very dire and i want us to push back against that and actually imagine a city that can be fun and joyful to live in and so join us uh may 18th i'll stop saying that now and we'll go to some news which unfortunately is also dire but may 18th i'll keep saying it may 18th tune in and feel some joy because yeah. it sounds like as the as the one host who doesn't live in Toronto, it sounds like if this evening doesn't go according to plan and it isn't full of joy, Dave's going to go like full Batman, full Gotham. <laughs> yeah, I'm going full fascist vigilante and Stefan's marriage is doomed <laughs> if you don't come to this event. Oh, and again, because we're talking positivity, if you are listening and you do come, which I hope you do please know that I will only accept positive feedback. So like, don't oh, come yeah. up to me and be like, hey, Lauren, show's great. Hate you though. <laughs> <laughs> only nice things, please. I have an extremely fragile ego. Yeah, well, we will take all negative feedback via email and all positive feedback exclusively during this event. That's uh, half off for Green Majority listeners at greenmajority.ca. These tickets are as hot as cross buns. Okay, where am I? Are we okay? I'm doing the news. Okay, climate news. Protests. This is the correct statement. Protests happened all across Canada this week. Yeah, protests happened all across this false nation this week against RBC and the bank's funding of fossil fuel projects. RBC is, of course, a main funder of the Coastal GasLink LNG pipeline that is currently being forced through unceded Wet'suwet'en land on the West Coast. At the annual general meeting in Saskatoon, uh, Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs were denied entrance uh, and placed in a, another room which didn't hold any of the executives, or anybody at all, even though they followed the proper registration requirements as proxies. 
police snipers were staked out on rooftops as the protest approached that particular building where the meeting was being held. And la- just last week, the RCMP raided the Gidimdan checkpoint on Wet'suwet'en territory and arrested five people, including the daughter of a hereditary chief. The raid was condemned by Amnesty International. Yeah, so m- multiple moving parts to everything that 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 happened kind of started over the weekend and and bled into uh, today, which is the day that we record Wednesday the fifth. Um, and today was was RBC's AGM. Either way, sorry. Um, on the weekend, April first, Fossil Fools Day. Every couple of years, people try to like make it a big thing, and this year it w- it was really big. There's a lot of people, a lot of organizations that have been campaigning around divestment in recent years. Um, and this RBC campaign is really ramped up because like David said, RBC is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, like bank funder of oil and gas projects in so-called Canada. And, and like Dave said, um, one of the projects that RBC funds is Coastal Gas Link, which, which is, um, is the LNG pipeline that's going through wet sweat and territory. Anyway, so there were something, I might be totally making this number up, but it was something like 60 actions happened um, over the weekend at various RBC branches, a really, really powerful showing of support for um, RBC as one of the big five banks in Canada to to divest their holdings, not just from the fossil fuel industry, but but Coastal Gas Link specifically, well, it, both and. Um, uh, and that kind of push was ahead of the RBC AGM that was happening today. And this is the second year in a row that RBC has managed to sort of um, slip um, and evade responsibility for its fossil fuel funding actions. Last year, the AGM was taken online, uh, which obviously made it impossible for people to participate in any meaningful way. This year, like David said, um, there was a large showing of um, Indigenous leaders, um, not only from Wet'suwet'en, but but I believe from across so-called Canada. And um, they went through the motions, they got their badges, they got their 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 proxies, they're called to allow them to be present in um, the AGM room. And they were, of course, denied entry, in addition to um, a large number of other uh, people of color, from what I understand, um, entirely respected by or disrespected by security, disrespected by by RBC. Um, and as a result, it's in no way is it surprising, but it's incredibly disappointing and incredibly infuriating. And it's one of those things where even even though there was a bit of a win um, because RBC shareholders that were in the room, something like 26 percent of them did vote in favor of upholding free prior informed consent and an undrip within RBC's practices. So that is a win. Um, it's yeah, it's 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 incredibly infuriating and, and par for the course. And it's especially upsetting when you consider that RBC, like so many Canadian corporations and Canadian banks and Canadian bodies, gets away with this veneer of of like greenwashing, I guess, for lack of a better word. I was trying to come up with something bigger because it's not just greenwashing. It's it's like it's human rights watch washing. It's this notion that we are these benevolent tree hugging Canadian entities um, because you'll oftentimes see RBC funding a lot of um, I don't know. You see their names on conferences. You see their names on like all those like RBC. I feel like they had like a sort of water program a few years ago. They try really, really hard to get out in front of this messaging and say that, no, we do fund lots of green projects and we have various fossil free funds for for people to buy into. But at the end of the day, they are the biggest funder of of oil and gas projects across this country, I believe, from a banking standpoint. Um, 
So yeah, RBC sucks at the end of the day and they continue to suck and they continue to not listen to shareholders and they continue to be not just like tacitly complicit, but like actively financially upholding the violence that's being perpetrated, uh, not just on Wet'suwet'en, but, but on indigenous peoples across this sham of a country. Yeah. And so two things I just want to sort of tack on to, to that great point. The first is that if folks don't understand how proxies work, I think it's important to note exactly what happened here. Because from my understanding, and there might be some particulars that I get wrong here, but I am very confident the overarching understanding here, which is that if you are a shareholder, uh, you can elect someone else to be your representative at these meetings. You can sort of be like, I'm going to give my proxy vote will be brought to these meetings by another individual. And we interviewed uh, some folks uh, from some of us a couple years ago who do this specifically. They are all about organizing shareholders to uh, to try to take on these institutions in these ways during these AGMs. Because it's the moment that shareholders are able to... Um, uh, to actually enact change in the in the overarching place, and so these the hereditary chiefs were chosen by legal shareholders to be their proxies, and yet they were denied access to be that proxy. Like this isn't some sort of protest that was therefore you know dissuade. This was people who had a legal reason to be there and a responsibility to be a proxy. Like these people, the shareholders who sent their hereditary chiefs as their proxies, have the right to have their proxies in the room to make their statements and to vote. Like that's how this works. And so the fact that that was stopped is egregious. And the other thing, which is a, a little more tangentially related, but I think important to note, is that the fact that this is an LNG pipeline, I think, means that sometimes the it doesn't get, I mean, it gets, it gets a ton of attention because of the fact that you're experiencing, um, yeah, it's it's you know complete gross colonial ex exploitation that comes with it, and that is you know been directly shown by the BC Supreme Court that this is on land that they do not own. And so all of that is 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 there. But I don't think from a climate change perspective it gets talked as much because it's LNG. And yet, and you will hear in an interview next week, uh, we do an interview with some folks from Say No to LNG, which is a coalition of groups coming together to try to ensure that that the shipping industry does not decide that its shift to green energy will be just a shift to LNG, which is a big concern right now. That instead of trying to reduce emissions, they're just going to be like, oh, well, we have slightly less polluting emissions, so we're going to go that way. And fighting this LNG battle everywhere we can is important to ensure that those kind of decisions don't get made as well. Yeah, one more thing just on the it's it's sort of tangential, like you said, almost just like a reminder for ourselves to to put a pin in it and circle back to it, if I can use some nonprofit lingo there. Um, at some point, we should spend a bit of time digging into, and maybe this will happen um, after your conversation with folks next week, 
um, about sort of like this concept of like the new dash to gas that's happening in Europe. It's kind of happening in Canada and people are also really worried about it happening um, it, largely in, in Africa as well, because there's a lot of natural gas or, or fossil gas reserves um, in that continent. And a lot of organizers and activists and communities are, are acutely aware of the fact that there's like this sort of potential new wave of, of colonial involvement um, in these countries that, that have this resource that um, corporations are so eager to tap into to keep their operations alive and to, to continue to, to, to leech, um, off of, off of these global South nations. So that is something that we should come back to at some point, um, because it's, it's kind of simmering under the surface of a lot of climate conversations right now. Um, and maybe we haven't given it the time it deserves. All right. And with that, we are going to turn to a special music break featuring the musician, Witch Prophet. It's an Eritrean-Ethiopian musician, now Toronto-based. A song called Energy Vampire, featuring Dylan Ponders. Vampire, energy vampire, stay away. Energy vampire, 
featuring Dylan Ponders. Witch Prophet's um, new album called Gateway Experience is out May 1st. So in just a few weeks, you can listen to Witch Prophet's new album, Gateway Experience. There was a man, all right, whose who's, who's group was, was, was investigated by the CIA, Stefan. I forget his name, but his whole thing was using technology to produce what he called the gateway experience. This is the this is the combination of meditation and uh, technologically enhanced frequency training. N training, I believe he called it. N training. That's E N T R A I. Why are you spelling training? N training. N training. And and this process is 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 is, is like it's, it's meant to break down the perceptual field as we know it, so that it can be reconstituted on a wait for it higher plane. Mm. So that's the context of the term gateway experience. And the CIA let out put out a report. <laughs> <laughs> this is so much more information. I know, but it's just so apropos. And the CIA and the CIA put out a report. On the Gateway Experience, uh, which you can go read. Very interesting. Um, okay. Moving on. We're going to do some climate news now. <laughs> Wait, what? That wasn't it? <laughs> what, 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 We're running what, out of time. What, uh, Just look up Gateway Experience CIA. Okay, whatever. <laughs> Massive multinational oil company Shell has uh, oh i forgot to mention i will mention at the end of this okay massive multinational oil company shell has put out a report outlining two scenarios of potential world energy use through the end of the century according to bloomberg in the scenario where global warming is limited to 1.5 degrees celsius shell has it that machines sucking carbon out of the air will require 66 exajoules of energy per year by 2100 66 exajoules of energy is the amount of energy needed to heat and power all of the world's homes. And Shell, of course, is a company that left the Netherlands to now be, uh, to, uh, to now be based in the UK in order to avoid the climate ruling that a Dutch court uh, had issued like last year or the year before. Inside Climate News is reporting that a series of independent investigations are alleging that the latest IPCC summary was watered down by corporate and national interests to downplay the need to consume less oil and meat and to inflate the role of carbon removal technology. According to The Intercept, Joe Biden is as bad and maybe worse than Trump when it comes to wild horses. Wild horses, Stefan laughs, but it's a serious issue. Wild horses and donkeys. Okay, they call the donkeys burrows. I call them asses. I don't know. It's, 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 it's a fine line between a burrow and a donkey. Okay, I'm using the word donkey. All right. Wild horses and donkeys are vastly outnumbered by cattle and are being imprisoned more and more to make way for the cattle. The National Academy of Sciences found in 2013 that the U.S. government's Bureau of Land Management is not informed scientifically about the western rangelands they're working with. 
and has made policy essentially catered to the cattle corporations. The government uh, used helicopters to round up and imprison 21,000 wild and wild horses and donkeys last year, which is way more than they've ever captured before. Um, so if you want to see a nice little picture of a government, a black government helicopter chasing down horses uh, in the rangelands, it's quite exciting. Finally, new research uh, published in the journal Nature Climate Change has found that rewilding certain ecosystems with animals could remove almost 500 gigatons of CO2 from the atmosphere by 2100 without risking food supply. So they're saying we can chuck a bunch more animals, and we should chuck a bunch more animals back into those ecosystems, not just random animals, the, the proper animals, of course. And they're not going to harm our, 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 farm, our farming opportunities, our food, our food supply. The abstract reads, quote, Natural climate solutions are being advanced to arrest climate warming by protecting and enhancing carbon capture and storage in plants, soils, and sediments in ecosystems. These solutions are viewed as having the ancillary benefit of protecting habitats and landscapes. However, this reasoning undervalues the role animals play in controlling the carbon cycle. And so they write that they present scientific evidence showing that protecting and restoring wild animals and their functional roles can enhance natural carbon capture and storage. So they call for new thinking that includes the restoration and conservation of wild animals and their ecosystem roles as a key component of natural climate solutions. So, yeah, I mean, those are a bunch of sort of wide-ranging stories. They're not wide-ranging at all. The first two relate to one another, and the second two relate to one another. Okay, okay, fine. Um, the horses are the ones that are wide-ranging. <laughs> not anymore. Right. Yeah, I mean, the first couple of stories, I think, will will get enough extra play sort of in the discussion that we have with Jeff and Bicky about sort of the ways in which oil companies have been trying to delay emissions flat out, or sorry, trying to delay climate action for since they learned about it, which is honestly, and you'll hear my myself being speechless again when you get to the, to that part of it or that part of the interview. So instead, I'll talk a little bit about these last two stories, and specifically the last one in terms of we have so much research about the opportunity in so many of these different places to get real work done and to get real, uh, to begin to actually rewild or find new ways to reduce carbon and stuff like that. And yet you don't really hear a lot about the actual attempts to do this. What we keep, we get stories about is the attempts to do carbon capture and storage and stuff like that, but there isn't a lot of work right now, to my knowledge, at least certainly not enough work right now, being done to actually test these things out. You know, like a new study says that maybe adding, you know, animals to ecosystems will reduce a ton of carbon, and that's a ton of carbon. 500 gigatons is a lot of carbon. But if we don't ever test this theory out, we'll never really know. And it's hard to test out, obviously, because, like, how do you actually figure out how much carbon is being accepted? Ecosystem is a lot harder than how much carbon you've successfully captured in a in a carbon capture and storage type device. But still, like, we just need to start trying some stuff. And, and, and that stuff should not be geoengineering, as we talked previously. But, in fact, things like this about trying to actually rewild nature, bring some nature back. And we're just not seeing nearly enough of it. And so I hope studies like this actually get some action. Well, I'm glad that you spent some more time talking about about rewilding and the wild horses thing. Yes, those are wonderful solutions and, and we need to be investing time in them. And and it's also like, yes, there are all these amazing ideas that require a lot of labor. So for those of us that are still 
circling around these conversations about what are workers going to do? There's ample work. Everybody will have work. It's going to be fine. There is so much that needs to happen in order for us all not to die. We're all going to have jobs doing it. It's, it's, it, we're really, we're going to be fine. And I'm not trying to be flippant and I'm not trying to be glib, but like, don't worry. There are ample jobs. I super duper promise. No, the, the, the thing that I kind of wanted to just, just circle back real quick and touch on, I apologize for saying circle back now three times <laughs> in this show. Um, but no, this, this story, um, from shell putting out this report outlining scenarios, um, to get us to one point or outlining energy scenarios for through to the end of the century. And and the 1.5 scenario, let me see shell. I'm literally repeating verbatim what Dave has already said, but it just blows my mind. Shell specifies, um, that CCUS will need to, will require 66 exajoules of energy per year by 2100 and 66 exajoules is the amount of energy needed to heat and power all of the world's homes so like if if my big dumb baby brain is comprehending that you're telling me that we are going to need to produce double the amount of energy just so we can offset the amount of energy like it's it's cuckoo bananas it's so stupid from just like i don't know an energy it's I can't, I can't imagine that they even had the courage and the audacity to put this out there. It's such nonsense. Like, I, I can't even think of an analogy that, that would make this make sense because it just doesn't make sense. We're, like, uh, it's so silly. And I cannot wait for these companies to finally be brought down and for us to be able to be like, you're so silly. You did this to yourselves and you have no one to blame but yourselves because your plans were nonsense plans. And we always knew they were nonsense plans. And we always knew that you never actually intended on sucking 66 exajoules of energy out of the atmosphere with your CCUS or whatever. Like this is, it's it's in such bad faith. That's the thing. It's like, I keep saying it's silly and it's nonsense, but it's, it's bad faith is what it is. It's they're they're just trying to put out just enough just enough language, just enough verbiage, just enough nonsense words to be able to continue operating business as usual and have something to show their shareholders at these meetings to keep on operating the way they always have and to keep making the money they always have. Like I'm, I'm, (laughs) it's not silliness. It's, it's outright audacious lying. And I'm so annoyed by it. And between that and everything that went down with RBC this week, I'm just, I'm so ready to burn it all down (laughs) yeah and when you think about that pitch from shell listen to this interview with jeff dembecki and then ask yourself do you think the companies that knew climate change was happening 50 years ago 60 years ago 70 years ago are serious when they say this do you think that that is truly something that they believe in or even care if it happens. (laughs) 
Jeff Dimbicki, an investigative climate journalist and the author of the Petroleum Papers. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me on the show. For folks who may not have heard of the book or for folks who are just sort of coming into this, because we're, we'll be talking about, you know, the fact that the oil industry knew about, very clearly knew about the, the cause of climate change being fossil fuels decades and decades before the consensus reached and then actively worked against it. That's the thing. And, and if people have followed any of the Exxon new hashtags or other, other things of that nature, I think it's pretty clear that the maybe the general listener of this show probably has some idea, but I'm excited to talk to you specifically because you have done this sort of deep research and then Canadian-specific research as well on this topic. And so for folks who may be just coming to this fresh, can you describe the what happened, basically? So at, at a very high level, in about 2015, there was this really amazing investigative journalism from the Los Angeles Times and this other outlet inside Climate News. And that sort of revealed for the first time that the oil and gas company Exxon had studied climate change and become an expert in the topic as far back as the 1970s. And so like many climate people, I was reading that with a lot of fascination. But I also knew that Exxon was heavily involved in Canada. And I saw that in a few of the articles that some of the climate research that the company had conducted was actually done in Canada. And so I thought, wow, there's, there's a whole Canadian angle to this Exxon news story that hasn't really been talked about or investigated. And so a few years after those investigative reports appeared, I became aware of a, a large collection of documents about the oil company Imperial Oil. So that's the Canadian subsidiary of Exxon. And those documents were uncovered by an investigative group known as DSMOG. And so I started reading through the documents, and there were hundreds and hundreds of them, and they track Imperial Oil's thinking on climate change over the course of many decades. And I thought, wow, here's a story that, that needed to be told. And so in, in my book's title, The Petroleum Papers, the papers refers to that huge collection of documents that I read through. So I guess the obvious next question is, what did you find? So specifically in regards to Imperial Oil, the company got interested in studying climate change long before it became a matter of concern to the public. And you could say in a sense that Imperial Oil and Exxon and, and really the wider oil and gas industry, they, they were the original climate change experts. Like it's, it's hard to overstate how advanced their understanding was on this topic. And, and it had to be because these companies are producing the fossil fuels that are creating the greenhouse gas emissions, which are warming our atmosphere. They wanted to have advanced knowledge of this environmental threat so that they would be able to set the terms of debate when government eventually came around to, to creating regulations on the industry. And just to give you one example of how advanced that understanding is, I read through one document from 1993 where Imperial Oil hired consultants 
to study how to actually fix climate change in Canada. And so this is 1993. NASA scientist James Hansen had only testified to Congress about the existence of climate change a few years earlier. So the public was just waking up to the fact that there is something called global warming. And meanwhile, Imperial is studying you know, how to fix this thing. And so the, the documents, it's, it's really fascinating because they run through a bunch of different solutions. But then the company concludes that if Canada were to enact a national price on carbon emissions, this could potentially stabilize the release of greenhouse gases in the country. They might begin to decline afterwards. And governments would have so much revenue from this carbon price that they could invest in all sorts of new green industries and create low carbon jobs across the entire country. So 1993, but Imperial learned that this policy would be specifically bad for its own operations in the Canadian oil sands. It would cost the company about $900 million in lost revenues. And so at this early stage, it created a list of talking points that executives at the company should use when speaking with government and media in order to spin this research and to present climate solutions as inherently bad for the economy and as having uncertain environmental benefit. That's truly incredible, right? Like just what you said there is astounding. The clarity of which the research was done by these companies. And in 93, they were already looking at how to fix it. But before then, these companies knew it was happening decades before then, to my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong. And yet, what's amazing about this is that, like, it goes to show you that this sort of narrative that at least, you know, when I was growing up, there was sort of this fight of the science isn't figured out yet or yada, yada. And the fact that these internal documents exist from that long ago that sort of spell us out specifically. And, like, I think there's always this sort of question about whether or not it's from ignorance, you know, that we didn't take action. And I think this research that you have done and the, the documents that you have sort of read through strike me as the most clear example that this is not from ignorance. Like, we didn't just not know the answer and it just took us too long to figure it out. We, like, people who looked into it knew decades ago. Yeah, and and by 1993, the industry had known for an extremely long time about the impacts of climate change. In fact, the the entire Canadian oil sands were set up after one of the companies involved in that had already learned about the dangers of climate change. And and so this this warning which predates the oil sands industry took place in 19 19- 59. And it was it was during an event at Columbia University that was set up in order to celebrate the 100-year birthday of the oil and gas industry. So there were, there were all sorts of oil and gas executives there in, in New York City, influential people in, in the government. And one of the keynote speakers at this event was a guy named Edward Teller. So he's famous for helping invent the atomic bomb. And Edward Teller is speaking to this room of oil and gas executives in 1959. And he says that he's been studying this new threat that he thinks could be more dangerous for humankind than nuclear war. And he says, this is the greenhouse gas effect. And so he explains to the room 
of oil and gas executives, how when you burn their products, it releases emissions into the atmosphere, warms the climate, the polar ice caps could eventually melt because of this. And one day in the future, New York City itself could be flooded and underwater. And so you got to wonder, like, how are these executives reacting to this news? It's a pretty wild thing to hear, but it's also coming from a very credible source, the guy who made the atomic bomb. But we, we do know how one of the people reacted to that news, or, or more specifically, what he did afterwards. And that's because up on stage with Edward Teller was this guy named Robert Dunlop. He was the head of a company called Sun Oil, and four years after that event, he was up in northern Alberta helping set up one of the first commercial oil sands operations. Sun Oil later changed its name to Suncor, and it's now the largest oil and gas producer in Canada. It's amazing how quickly history, when understood, becomes so immediately damning to those uh, in the world that we live in today. And so with that basis, like here, very clearly, many of these oil companies, if not all of them, knew exactly what their product was going to do. And they set out to do, to take something out of the, I would, often the story in my mind goes that they sort of take something out of the smoking play, a play, play, play that's the, the sort of the smoking playbook. That's what I'm looking for, a playbook. But also, it happened so early that it's hard to say whether this is actually comes, whether not smoking learned from them or they learned from smoking at this point, you know, like given the timelines here. But let's talk about this, the disinformation campaign, because obviously that became the next focus, right? Like once the oil companies were certain that they were doing it, basically, by the late early 1990s, it sounds like, is when they were pretty certain that they were the cause of all of this, they sort of shift their focus into, okay, now that we're certain it's us, how do we convince everyone else it's not us? And so can you talk about sort of the disinformation campaign that sort of began then and then has carried on, honestly, until this day? Yeah, and the, the disinformation campaign waged on behalf of oil and gas really began in the late 80s, early 90s. And in the documents I read, this, this didn't just come out of nowhere. In fact, for, for years and years, the industry had been trying to figure out how it would fight back once public understanding of climate change caught up to what the oil companies knew about it. So that's spelled out quite explicitly in internal corporate documents. And they, they knew they needed some sort of strategy because they were highly vulnerable to costly regulations. And so what you see is in Canada, for example, Imperial Oil in, in 1993, it's studying how to fix climate change. A few years later, in its annual reports, it's telling its shareholders that there is no proven link between fossil fuels and global warming. It's insane <laughs> that they, they, they would put that in writing. Meanwhile, in, in the United States, there starts to be a really aggressive effort to convince the general public that climate change isn't happening. So when, one of the first events devoted to Climate denial takes place in the early 90s. It's sponsored by a group called the Cato Institute, and that's a libertarian organization created by Charles and David Koch. They're the owners of Koch Industries, which also happens to be one of the biggest refiners of oil sands oil from Alberta in the United States. And so at this conference, all of these scientists get together. They're not actually climate scientists, 
but they they had some of them had recently been involved in these test campaigns in small American cities such as Flagstaff, Arizona, where on radio shows these guys would go on and tell people that climate change wasn't real; it was just made up by the liberal establishment. Rush Limbaugh, the conservative radio host, also appeared in these campaigns, and what they found in these small markets was that. People would would start off hearing the climate science, being really freaked out about it. And then they would hear these radio spots saying it was all a hoax. And people's concern about climate change just dropped off a cliff. And it was it was measured and, and written down in strategy documents. And so the the people behind these campaigns were like, holy cow, like we we need to take this national. And and so through groups like the global Climate Coalition and others like the National Association of Manufacturers, there becomes this effort to just spread climate denial as aggressively as possible. Exxon is is running like full page ads in the New York Times saying the, the science is unsettled. Back in Canada, Imperial Oil gathers up some of these contrarian scientists who were at that Coke-sponsored conference. It brings a whole bunch of them to Ottawa and they hold a press conference trying to convince members of parliament and media that there's no proven link between fossil fuels and climate change. And, and so when we talk about disinformation campaigns, it was, it, was, it was a preservation strategy for the industry. And ironically, the climate denial was informed by the industry's deep, deep knowledge of how climate change actually works. And to just give one final example of how advanced these companies were, there was a paper out recently in the journal Science that compared Exxon's predictions about global warming back in the 70s to what we're actually observing now. And it found that those predictions decades ago were incredibly accurate. We're living in the world now that that Exxon mapped out many, many years ago. It's just impressive, A, that that sort of thing works. And of course, we know it works. And so one of the ways this book is described is that it's a true crime investigation. And so if it is a true crime investigation, who are the criminals? Who are the people that we should be holding account for this? The people that we should be holding to account are the heads of these companies who knowingly signed off on a strategy that they, they knew would delay society's response to the existential question of climate change. And if, if you wanted, you know, specific names, Robert Peterson, who was the, the chairman of Imperial Oil in the 90s, he was overseeing the company at the time when, when it was really, you know, studying the causes of climate change, looking at solutions. And then he's signing his name to annual reports saying that the science isn't real. And so that's that's the very clear example of 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 someone who who should have known better. And there there are many examples of this. There was, you know, people who signed off on research at the oil company Shell looking into the the causes of of climate change. They sort of contracted out to this advanced research lab in the United Kingdom. And these these companies they they learned pretty disturbing things like Shell learned internally that sea level rise due to climate change could flood 
entire countries like Bangladesh could become uninhabitable. And it's 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 laid out in this very casual, detached way in the documents. Like <laughs> this country with millions of people, it might not exist anymore. But you know, oh well. And you know, more poignantly, there there were stuff in in the documents I read that was you know predicting um, that that tropical storms could get worse and more intense due to climate change. And so as part of the research for this book, I traveled to the, the Philippines a few years ago and I interviewed a young woman named Joanna who saw many family members die in superstorm Typhoon Haiyan, which was one of the most powerful storms ever recorded in human history. And she said that when she learned that oil companies had predicted internally that their products would cause these type of storms, and now she had just lived through one, survived it, seeing seeing the people closest to her die in that event. She said she the strategy seemed so immoral to her. She just couldn't fathom that people would ever endorse it. How could you not? That's something about this book and your research that strikes me as so interesting is that it's so stark, right? Like we knew this would happen. We let this happen. Now it is happening is a very simple line, right? It's like, it is, you don't have to get all fancy with causation and stuff like that. It's like, this is what where we're at. And, and honestly, if in the early 1990s, we had actually instituted a slowly increasing carbon tax, you probably, we would be living in a very different world right now. Like, the the strategy they took unbelievably hampered our ability to take this in a to to deal with this in a way that would not be so stark that we've had that we're now trying to see we were now trying to see these massive reductions in in a you know in in four or five years you know like fifty percent reduction by twenty thirty that's massive in comparison to where we were at in the in nineteen tens and a recent guest on this show made the point that since the time that friends began which again is around 1990 half of the emissions that we have released have been released meaning that like when they knew we had only put in half as much carbon in the atmosphere as we currently have and that's mind blowing right like that is just so stark into how much and how deeply this has negatively impacted us and so from my surprise i want to hear about yours which is that this is a question I love asking people who've done deep research, deep research on things. When you were looking into this and when you were doing your research, was there anything that sort of stood out to you that maybe surprised you or that you just feel like people need to know about that you're like, this one thing has got to be known? I mean, there, there were a lot of moments like that. During the research of my book, we've we've gone over a few of them. That 1959 meeting with the the guy who would help set up the Canadian oil sands, to me that was incredibly mind blowing. The 1993 document where Imperial figures out how to fix climate change, that blew my mind too. But I I think you know at at sort of a a meta level, the the thing that I really took away from this and and which you kind of described a moment ago. Is is that we we really could have gotten this thing under control way way back when you know when I personally was was only a few years old, 
I spoke to a former employee at Exxon and, and I asked him about that Imperial study and I said, okay, Imperial figures out how to fix climate change. What if it had like put the huge weight of Exxon behind that? Um, because at that point, Exxon was one of the most powerful companies in the entire world. And so if Exxon had gone and started lobbying world governments and said, we need to, to get a price on emissions and and we know actually the hit to the economy could even be beneficial because of all of this new government revenue and green industries and we could create all these jobs the the former employee at, at Exxon this guy Enrique Rosero he said that totally would have changed incentives across the entire global economy and it it would have been a fairly gradual transition i don't, i don't think we really would have felt it to be that jarring we would we would have had a lot of time to to slowly phase out fossil fuels. It would be better for the companies. They wouldn't be staring at this cliff where they suddenly have to shut down all their production. They would have ample time to to invest in in replacements to oil. Like by by any measure other than like the quarterly profits of a few companies over over a few years, it it would just be a benefit to to everybody. But that's that's not the the path that that we took, and and instead now we we are just like staring at this sort of like existential crisis, and the knowledge to me that we we could have avoided all of this, I think, is is what really still sits with me the most. What do you think the environmental movement today can learn or can should learn about this history? Like, what should we? Should we, what should we change or should we do or what should we take away from this knowledge? So for, for so long, the, the narrative on climate change has been that it's, you know, a problem of, of individual behavior. We all drive cars. We pollute too much. You know, we're, we're, we're kind of lazy. We litter. Um, our, our lifestyles are causing this emergency. And that, that's been reflected in a lot of rhetoric and campaigns and, and proposed solutions over the years. But I, I think when you know the true history of climate change, you, you realize that actually we had all of these incredible opportunities to get the emergency under control and to build up these new green industries. And it was a relatively small handful of companies that stood in the way of those solutions, sabotaged them and spread you know deliberate lies saying climate change isn't real to the general public. And so I, I think where that leaves you now is is that we we really shouldn't be viewing the oil and gas industry as good faith players in this conversation, because if they were, they could have helped stop this thing decades and decades ago. And so there's a real push on now, especially in Canada, to sort of spin the oil and gas industry as being climate leaders, as being essential for dealing with this problem. You have the the Pathways Alliance, which is comprised of the six largest oil sands companies, running front page ads in the Toronto Star, saying that they're they're on their way to net zero. They've got this problem under control. And I I think you know we should we should really view climate action as a a political question. As as long as these sorts of companies are able to continue exerting power over our political policy making process, we we aren't actually going to be able to to deal with the the crisis, but in a sense, this is kind of 
you know, it's a depressing history, but for me, it's, it's a bit invigorating and it leaves me feeling like I have a bit of agency because getting, you know, billions of people around the planet to voluntarily change their behavior overnight seems like something that would be absolutely impossible, but challenging the political power of, of a handful of companies, it's, it's not something easy to do, but that's, that's a much easier ask, I think, in terms of like what where the environmental movement should be directing its energy. Thank you so much. How can people find this book and follow along with your work? So they can get the book from Greystone, which is the publisher, or from any number of independent bookstores or or hell, even go to Chapters or, or buy it on Amazon, however you want to get it. And um, I'm continuing to write for outlets like Dsmog, The Guardian, The Taiyi, um, where I'm continually updating this story so people could follow me on, on Twitter, too, um, if they want to just search me on there. If folks do want to hear Jeff speak, in, if you are in Toronto and you're hearing this on CAUT, you can come to an event. Jeff is speaking on April 13th. Science First is hosting a an event. If you Google Science First and Jeff in April, April 13th in the city of Toronto, you will find it. You can get a ticket and come join. This has been Jeff Dimbicki, the investigative climate change journalist and the author of the Petroleum Papers. Thank you so much for being here. And yeah, any last thoughts? I guess my final thought is, you know, I, I grew up in Alberta, in Edmonton, you know, short drive south of the the oil sands and a lot of my family and friends work in the industry and and I have a lot of I have a lot of respect for for the workers who do that job. I know it's it's really hard work when they they put a lot of themselves into it. And so um I think in in reading my book people shouldn't view it as as an attack on on individuals who are involved in in industries. I, I think we we sort of all have to work together to build the kinds of social movements that would hold these companies accountable. I I would like people to take away the the idea, which is correct in my opinion, that it was actually just a small handful of executives who who devised these strategies and then implemented them over the last few decades. And, and so I guess that's that's where I would end off. 